Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. A listener note, this episode contains violence and content that some listeners might find distressing. Previously on Deliver Us from Herbal. Herbal thought that he could just move in and take leadership. Well, it didn't work. That's the problem. They thought they were going to go out and save the world. Herbal was their leader. There's really going to be no stopping him. Anyone who opposed him deserved to die, including a daughter. So I called my mother, and she said, Honey, your daddy's been shot. They said from the beginning, the only way you're going to get Herbal is to break someone substantial in his group. The FBI today arrested a key suspect in the 1977 religious assassination of polygamous patriarch Rulin Allred. Agents arrested 20-year-old Rena Shanoff at the International Bridge in Laredo, Texas. Even though we didn't have solid eyewitness testimony that she was the one that pulled the trigger, I was pretty confident that we had sufficient evidence to convict. And the judge raised the verdict, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Back in 1976, the leader of the Church of the Lamb of God sent a letter to Jimmy Carter. A battle is raging, he would write. A battle of the most important, decisive nature the world has ever known. The Geneva Peace Convention and the British Parliament would get similar letters from Herbal too. As God's prophet on earth, he wanted, well, actually demanded, world domination. Herbal had always aimed high absurdly, delusionally high. But by this point, in Ervil's mind, there was plenty of evidence to back up his delusions, his belief that God was on his side. Because even a few years after that letter to the president, 
There still hadn't been a single conviction in the United States against any of Ervil LeBaron's active cult members for their murderous activities. But despite this, in Salt Lake City, the cops like Detective Dick Forbes and prosecutors like David Yoakum, they weren't going to just give up and stop. After all, Ervil seemed to actually believe he spoke for God. And God wanted him to commit these killings. But many of the people hunting Ervil LeBaron saw this as a holy crusade too. Most belonged to the Mormon church or had been raised in it. They were trying to clean up their own house. This applied to Del Van Atta, the investigative reporter following Ervil's trail you heard in episode four, and Dick Forbes too, the Salt Lake City detective Del was swapping information with. Plus, from the mid-70s, there was a certain prosecutor in California who also had the cult in his crosshairs. Hey, Dick. Hey, who's, uh, who's uh, Jesse? I'm Jesse. Pleasure to meet you. Come on in, guys. I knew we were in the right spot when I saw the format come back <laughs> in the morning. This is Gary Rempel. For decades, he worked as a prosecutor in San Diego. Mormon, like me, went to BYU, except got kicked out. Gary isn't your typical Mormon. He's always been a little rough around the edges. He comes from Stockton, California. Even today, you tell someone you're from Stockton, people might assume you know how to scrap. If you uh, pulled up at a stop sign, you look over at the other car and there was another teenager there, and you looked at that guy for more than about five seconds, you were going to be in a fight in the street before the light changed. So Gary learned how to fight. I took... Taekwondo, I went about three or four times a week. But then I got hired as a marshal on my 21st birthday and started carrying a gun. And I immediately dropped out of Taekwondo because fists are fast, but bullets are faster. Gary's being slightly tongue-in-cheek here, but only slightly. In person, he manages to be simultaneously both warm and humorous and yet unflinching, antagonistic. And these pugilistic parts of his personality, well, he carried that into his job at the San Diego County District Attorney's Office. Here, for nearly 40 years, Gary fought cases in court, sometimes quite literally. (laughs) We'd go to war in the courtroom like we were going to a sporting event every day. Uh, I've tried Crips. I've tried Hells Angels. uh, I've tried all kinds of murderers. And I just have a good time. I kind of treat it like a sport. My style was to be extremely aggressive, almost physically aggressive in court, but I'd always smile at the crook. What makes these stories all the more amusing to me is the fact that Gary's not a big guy. He might be my size, 5'10", thin frame. But as well as that Taekwondo, he was a wrestler in college. He has that wily style of fighting. And he'd use that in the courtroom, too. Well, coming from a tough town, I knew I couldn't out-mad dog the crooks. And I genuinely disliked the violent crooks. So what I did was I smiled at them. And when I was given my closing statement, if it was a violent crook, I loved it if I could get him to attack me. I'd been attacked three times in the courtroom in front of the jury. And it's just, it's wonderful because the jury gets to see what these people are like on the streets. It wasn't just gang members. Gary used this tactic for the cold-blooded killers, too. And I had one murderer that had just about cut a guy to pieces and was throwing parts of him around the room. 
It was a horrific case. He'd attacked me, incidentally, during the trial. And he refused to come in for sentencing because, as he told the judge, I don't want to come in there because you're going to sentence me to life and Mr. Rempel's going to smile at me and I don't want to see him smile. The LeBaron case, though, this was different. These weren't crips or contract killers. These were religious zealots from a branch of Gary's own faith. And what they wanted was beyond reason, unlike anything Gary had encountered. These guys want to dominate the world. But you see, this thing about this particular cult that stands out, these people are extremely clean cut. You can see a dirtbag dope dealer coming at you down the street. These guys could walk up next to you in a supermarket pushing a cart, more clean cut than I've ever been, shoot me twice behind the ear, walk outside, get arrested, ask him if they'd ever done anything wrong, and they say no. They'd pass the polygraph. The murder Gary was trying to prosecute was of Dean Vest, that giant of a man who left the army after strangling his sergeant, then did a stint in prison and joined Ervil's cult. It was Gary's job to try and get a conviction against one of Ervil LeBaron's assassin wives, Vonda White. She was somewhat nondescript, humble-looking, straight hair, sort of a older waif, thin, hollow-cheeked, blinking eyes, non-threatening-looking. In other words, when Gary Rempel would eventually face Vonda in court, she wasn't going to try to mad-dog anyone. And for Gary, the stakes could not have been higher. So far, every prosecutor who had taken a cult member to trial had gone in confident with eyewitnesses, fingerprints, and other circumstantial evidence. And yet, somehow, every time, Ervil's posse had been acquitted. And so the prosecutors and cops trying to take this murderous cult down really needed this one to stick. They needed to stop the killings. With one conviction, they were sure the dominoes would start to fall and they could finally bring down Ervil. But in their way were fugitive suspects, watertight alibis, plus the fact that one of their previous star witnesses from inside the cult was about to die. From the teams at Novel and iHeartRadio, this is Deliver Us from Ervil. I'm Jesse Hyde. This is Episode 7, Ervil Comes Home. Throughout this series, I've tried to draw a clear line between mainstream Mormonism and its fundamentalist branches. Partly for accuracy, mainstream Mormons haven't practiced polygamy in over 100 years, and the faith is, trust me, anything but violent. And partly because I don't want to lump people I love in with a group like Herbal LeBaron's. Many of my friends and family are still devout believers. That said, it also wouldn't be fair 
or accurate to not trace the roots of some of these beliefs to their source. For many Mormons, these are uncomfortable truths. Things maybe they don't want to look at. One of the most controversial doctrines in Mormonism, for example, is called blood atonement. Mainstream Mormons rarely utter these words. If you do, things can get weird. Because blood atonement is the belief that some sins are so awful, you can't be forgiven unless your blood is spilt. Without blood atonement, you become a son of perdition. Get sent to hell. That unique kind of Mormon hell known as outer darkness. Your blood is spilt to save you from that terrifying fate. Nowadays, not many mainstream Mormons have even heard of blood atonement. I never had growing up. Or in fact, until I first started studying Mormon fundamentalism. And the doctrine is disputed. But some fundamentalists do believe it. And that is what happened to the giant Dean Vest. Saturday in June of 1975 was yet another sunny and cloudless day in National City, a working-class suburb south of San Diego, not too far from the border with Mexico. This is where Dean Vest lived with a few of Herbal's followers. It was common for cult members to share houses like this together. Unremarkable on the outside, here they could live inconspicuously with a bunch of their kids. Herbal periodically visiting. Dean Vest shared this house with a few of Herbal's wives, a woman called Linda Johnson and her kids, and Vonda White and her kids too. And this Saturday, Vonda had told Vest she was going to cook him a special meal. When Vest arrived at their home that day, Vonda told him the meal was ready. She told him to uh, wash up. She was dressed in pants, top, and a apron. As he bent over the sink to wash up, because he had to do some serious bending, because this guy was seven feet tall in his stockings. Uh, as he bent over, she sneaked up behind him and gave him one in the back, which pierced his lungs. When prosecutor Gary Rempel first started on the case, he used the evidence at the crime scene to try to build a narrative. He spun around, spewing blood from his mouth in a circle, staggered and collapsed on the floor, whereupon, according to protocol, she gave him one behind the ear. By this time, Ervil's cult had killed so many people, they'd established a methodology. One behind the ear, just to make sure they were dead. As the shots were fired across the street, was an off-duty police officer who owned a laundromat there. He was there emptying the boxes, collecting some money. Here's a couple of shots. Looks immediately in the direction from which they came. He was able to scan both the front door and the back area of the house and saw that nobody ever left. This was great for us because that puts Vonda the only person in the house. Shortly after arriving on the scene, the cops had suspected Vonda might have been responsible, and so they brought her in for questioning. Date is June 16th, 1975. The time is 1740 hours. 
Interviewing officer is Detective E.T. Deese, National City Police Department. And your name, please? Bonda Evelyn White. And where do you live, Mrs. Wright? 439 East Street. All right, Mrs. White, uh, I'm going to read you your rights now, as guaranteed in the Constitution. I wish you would listen to the rights as I read them. Listening into this police interrogation with Vonda, you kind of get a sense of what Gary Rempel was up against. People were accused of this, although there was no evidence supporting this. The way she could lie so convincingly to police, so undramatically. Honestly, it's pretty impressive. First of all, about the Colts' previous murders, which she blamed on Joel and Verlon LeBaron's church said it was all the actions of the followers of the chill fundamentalist back in Colonial LeBaron. And members of their church have gone directly to our people and have threatened them with violence. And then when it came to the Dean Vest murder itself... Referring to uh, the occurrences of this date, can you tell me what happened, in your own words, leading up to the time in which police officers arrived? Yes. Uh, I was upstairs with my children and I heard a succession of shots and a call of police. Okay, when you say succession, is that more than one? More than one. Uh, can you give me an exact count of shots? No, I, I know I heard more than one, but I was frightened. And... Okay, where were you at I was at in the, the time you heard the shots? I was in the upstairs bedroom where I moved into the bedroom. Okay, and uh, where were the children at that time? All right, I had my little one with me, and the other children were in the bedroom reading. Has everything you told me regarding this incident, your participation in this incident, been truthful? Yes. Even if the cops did feel she was lying, what came out during this interrogation was troubling. Vonda had an alibi. When the police arrived, she said she'd been upstairs reading a naptime story and talking on the phone to Linda Johnson when she hears some shots that Linda Johnson would have heard too, because Linda Johnson was her alibi. And she came downstairs and found the horrible scene. Linda Johnson, another of Ervil's wives. Linda Johnson was a very nice, stout woman who just did whatever Ervil asked, and she was ill-treated by him and uh, just used as a servant, basically. This servant was an expert forger able to give members of the cult multiple identities. And because the cult was operating in a period before electronic records across multiple state and national boundaries, her skills caused all sorts of problems for law enforcement. But Linda and her alibi weren't the only issue cops faced when it came to solving the Dean Vest murder. There weren't any clean prints on the murder weapon, for one. Also, they couldn't figure out the motive. Just what had happened between Vonda and the huge Dean Vest? You can hear that here in their initial questioning with Vonda, trying to work out the motive. They were both known members of Ervil's cult. Why would she kill Dean? Have you uh, recently or in the past had any disagreement with Mr. No. The police have blanked out Dean's name in the recordings here. Has anyone living in the house had a disagreement with Mr. Not that I know. We were on good terms. Gary stuck with it. I was able to defuse the alibi. 
First, he dug into Linda's background, found some welfare fraud, and used the threat of charges against Linda Johnson to spook her into cooperating. If she had testified in the trial, I could have easily impeached her. And so she chose to stay in Denver, and I never saw her again. Vonda's alibi was gone, but Vonda was still in the wind, and Gary still didn't have a motive. The years passed, 76, 77, and into February of 78. But then, Lloyd Sullivan was arrested, flipped. The former Ervil foot soldier, now with his axe to grind against Ervil. And once he started giving information to the cops, he didn't just rat out Ervil for the killing of Rulin Allred. I'm going to show you a photograph. I recognize this photo. I recognize this as the lady who calls herself Vonda White, Jean Wolfe, uh, a number of other aliases. But yes, I do recognize it. This is Lloyd Sullivan from that interview with cops on March 24th, 1978, where he's about to lay out for them just why Vonda White shot Dean Vest. And Herbal M. LeBaron told me he had turned traitor to the kingdom of God, <clears throat> excuse me, and must die. He must die because he was a traitor to the kingdom. And uh, what period of time was this? Must have been in the early part of 75. And the next thing I know, uh, Vonda White had had a commandment from Herbal to kill him. So sometime later, I suppose she wanted to get it off her chest. I don't know, she trusted me quite well and indicated several times she thought quite well of me. And uh, it seems like we were standing in the kitchen. I can recall vividly standing there and she told me that uh, she did indeed kill. That broke the case wide open. Prosecutor Gary Rempel couldn't believe his luck. Sullivan told a story how Vonda White had killed Dean Vest. She'd intercepted a phone call or happened to pick up an extension where he was arranging to meet with the FBI in Seattle, where his wife had moved. He was defecting to the FBI, and he was going to bring along a trunk full of automatic weapons, sniper rifles, and explosives. What's more, Lloyd agreed to say all this in court, to take the stand. So Lloyd was instrumental, and Lloyd Lloyd was my principal witness. Then, more good news. In March 78, not long after Lloyd's testimony, there was another break in the case. Vonda was apprehended. But it seems the good news couldn't last. And as the case moved to trial, Lloyd got spooked. By now, he was effectively living in a witness protection program. He genuinely feared for his life. And then, he had his location revealed by a local newspaper in the Utah town where he was hiding out. He was under an assumed name in a small town in the suburb area of Salt Lake City. They even published a picture of him. And Lloyd knew better than anyone just how dangerous this was. After all, he'd helped plan many of the cult's killings. He was getting extremely paranoid. He was sure he'd be recognized in that town and killed. Also, he had a drinking problem, I should tell you that. So he wasn't in the best of health. A drunk paranoid. Not exactly a good mix for a man in hiding. 
And Lloyd was becoming increasingly convinced that some of Ervil's killers were around each corner waiting for him. He needed a new identity, something to help him avoid detection. In May of 78, he called his handlers in the police and told them, begged them to help. So he's in a phone booth prior to cell phones, calling the Salt Lake Police Department where his connections were. And as that occurred, a car drove by and backfired. Mistaking it for a shot, he died of a heart attack. Gary Rempel's star witness was dead. Killed, not by Ervil, but by a backfiring car. And that wasn't the only bump in the road. That's coming up after the break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. 
Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. It was the summer of 1978, and the heat was on for Gary Rempel, that prosecutor who liked to stare down gang members and killers. As the trial of Vonda White got underway, even he felt an unnerving tension in the air. Not just the usual pressure on the cops and prosecutors for a conviction, or even a conviction against the Colt. With Ervil still at large, there was a real risk to life, to everyone involved in these court cases. Ervil LeBaron had taken his belief in what he called the law of force and morphed it into this blood atonement, a theology which wasn't simply based on vengeance, but rather that a killing could be a form of compassion. For her defense in court, Ervil's group had pulled their tithing and hired Vonda, an expensive team of private defense attorneys. We'd have these arguments, and they'd be at sidebar, and they'd get quite animated. And during one of these arguments, halfway through the case, things were getting pretty heavy. And suddenly the lights went out in the courtroom. At least one or two jurors screamed. I had grabbed one of the guys that was slouching and put him in front of me, with my back to the wall of the courtroom. I had my back to the wall, a defense attorney in front of me, and I was pulling out my Derringer when the lights came back on. One of these guys slouching against the wall had inadvertently turned off the lights. Gary's eyes light up telling me this tale. He has this mischievous panache when he's telling all his best stories. But the fact that he grabbed someone else for cover... I think that shows just how scared everyone actually was of Ervil's cult at this point in the late 70s. Of their reach, would they really hit a courtroom mid-trial? Gary clearly thought they might. And if Gary had sensed he had reason to fear for his own life in just trying to prosecute this cult, he was right. The cult had put a hit out on Gary. In fact, during his investigation into Ervil LeBaron, the man himself had sent three of his most efficient assassins, his right-hand man, Dan Jordan, Mark Chinoth, and Eddie Marston, to Gary's home to kill him. About 11 o'clock one night, I was uh, awakened by a phone call from the San Diego Police Department that the FBI had just contacted them. The FBI told them they'd wiretapped Ervil, and the word came out, Ervil had ordered three guys to come up and kill me, to drive up from Ensenada to my house and kill me. They had my address. Ensenada's about two hours from where I live there. In the time it took the FBI to get this information from their wiretap, relay it to the cops who relayed it to Gary, precious time had been lost. Ervil's hit team had a two-hour drive to their target. So all I had was a snub-nosed 38. And I was on a cul-de-sac, and I didn't know if they were coming up the cul-de-sac, so I, I couldn't leave the area. So I ran across the street to the neighbor, and I borrowed his German Shepherd, big dog, and uh, I brought him to guard the front door. 
Well, that German shepherd started whining. He could sense my tension. I was high amps. And he started whining and crying by the front door. And I thought, it's going to be a liability if he defecates on the floor while I'm trying to shoot it out with these guys. So I took him back to the neighbor and I stood there with my 38, hoping that the cops got there before the crooks. And uh, sure enough, the cops made it. And there's a bunch of cars. The hit team assigned to Gary must have seen those lights and aborted the mission. Then along about then, a couple of DA investigators showed up. And the byproducts of this whole episode was I had to move out of my house. I lived under a phony name in a hotel for a while till all this was over. Trying a member of Ervil LeBaron's cult had nearly cost Gary his life. And then another setback. In July of 78, the judge in the case suddenly declared a mistrial. He didn't like my style because it conflicted with his style. That's what I think. We were kind of going back and forth in time. And I'm having a good old day in court as far as I was concerned. And so we had a little argument. And his cure for my misbehavior was to declare a mistrial. But maybe setback is the wrong word. Because Gary, that kid from Stockton, was ready for another round. Gary got some more insider information on the Colt. It turns out round one with Gary in court, his punches had done some damage. After that mistrial, I went out to a restaurant for lunch with the uh, three defense attorneys. And they admitted to me uh, they're running through the uh, Colt's money. You know, the side effect of this whole case was that I broke the bank. Gary smelt blood in the water. When the second trial came, I was really pumped up because I knew they were suffering. And I was only going to get stronger. I wasn't going to get weaker. On the 1st of May, 1979, just a few months after the acquittal of Rena Chinoth, the second trial against Vonda White began. And the Colt were using similar tactics from those that had freed Rena and her accomplices. They blamed the killing on one of the witnesses for the prosecution. Don Sullivan. Gary had seen that move coming a mile away. I found out that at the time Dean Vest was murdered by Vonda White, Don Sullivan was in another state standing at the window of a teller making a bank deposit. I got that teller, and when I put him on the stand, they were done for. He had the receipt, and there was a signature that we matched the handwriting on of Don, proving irrevocably through an independent witness that he was standing at the teller's window. And the teller besides remembered him. The case was basically over at that point. It was shortly thereafter went to the jury. After just two hours of deliberation, just two hours, that's all it took after all these years of unaccounted for slayings by Herbal's Colts. Ervil promised these people that if they took these callings, they could never be convicted of a crime because they hadn't really committed a crime in their hearts. And more importantly, it showed that they could be convicted of murder and they couldn't get away with it. For the first time, one of Ervil's assassins had been convicted and it was like a spell had been broken. Vonda's sentencing would take place in mid-June of 79, and by then, another arrest would have taken place. 
this time over the border in Mexico. Prosecutor David Yoakum, who had failed to get a conviction against Rena and the other cult members, was about to get another shot, this time at Ervil himself. He had roamed pretty free up till that time, uh, even as a fugitive from a murder case in Utah. Probably bought his way out of every problem he had down there. But Ervil's time living as a fugitive in Mexico was about to be up. He had uh, caused some problems down there, and members of his group had assaulted uh, Mexican nationals. Mexican law enforcement received a tip about Ervil's exact whereabouts. They just got fed up with him and notified the U.S. authorities that uh, he'd been apprehended and, and was on his way. In the past, he'd managed to get out of prison and walk away. But this time, he'd been driven straight to the border. Met the uh, federal authorities there and our investigators. And that tip the Mexican cops received about Ervil's exact whereabouts? It had come from Larive Stubbs. Still tracking Ervil's whereabouts all these years later from down in Colonial Baron. We had it figured out to take him right to the border, handcuffed, and they did. The guys took off their foot cuffs and their handcuffs and told them to get out and walk. And he did. And they said, and if you try to run, we'll shoot your feet. They stood right there. And they walked across the border and we had like 30 officials there waiting for him. Ervil LeBaron had been arrested. That's coming up after the break. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The city of Laredo sits on the northern bank of the Rio Grande, one foot in Texas, one in the Mexican state of Tamaulipas on the southern bank of the river. This is where Reno was handed over to U.S. authorities, and now the same fate met Ervil LeBaron. But when Ervil crossed over into the arms of U.S. law enforcement in June of 1979, the image had to be a letdown to all those who'd been reading about this so-called Mormon Manson. The guy didn't look scary or impressive. Even his lawyer was a little taken aback when he saw him. The first image is of a grandfatherly figure sitting in a jail jumpsuit. Public defender Bruce Lubeck was one of three lawyers assigned to Herbal to try and make his case in the upcoming trial. My first impression was they've got the wrong guy here. This isn't Herbal LeBaron, the evil-looking uh, dynamic figure that controls young people and multiple wives and has them kill people. This is a kindly-looking, gentle, meek-looking old man who looks uh, beaten down and tired and didn't seem to be dynamic. He seemed very low-key. And, and I said, you know, how, I don't know how he could get anybody to do anything. You know, I mean, why would anyone follow him? Irva was charged with first-degree murder for Dr. Rulin Allred and first-degree conspiracy to murder Verlin LeBaron for that botched assassination attempt the group had planned for Dr. Allred's funeral. The lawyers hoped Ervil would give them something they could use as a compelling defense. It seemed Ervil felt this was something they didn't need to worry about. It was in God's hands, and God had always protected him. He felt that somehow his truth was going to prevail and that I, I was one who was going to help that come about. And I said to myself, I'm a lowly public defender in a small city in Utah. And I doubt that I'm a world changer. <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't. And I told him that. And he said, oh, no, no, don't sell yourself short. There's miracles going to come out of this. And he believed it. But as Ervil laid out his beliefs and justifications to his lawyers, it was hard for them to keep up. We'd go into a small room of metal walls, <laughs> no windows, metal door that they locked from the outside. And they'd say, knock when you're done. And he would start on his preaching often in one way or another. And I regret to say this, and it, but it's in retrospect, it was part of it. I, I can remember I've got my legal pad there and I'm holding my pen and taking notes, you know, and he's talking. And I, 
and I would drop my pencil and it would wake me up and I just kind of fell asleep a couple times. He never said, oh, am I boring you? Sorry. Uh, he was always very kind. He said, oh, yeah, it's a hard time of day to stay awake, isn't it? And I said, oh, oh, it can be. You know? he, was, he never got upset at that, but I, I know I fell asleep. The trial of Erva LeBaron began on Wednesday, May the 14th, 1980. A new decade had arrived in the hunt against Erva and his cult, with the optimism that the saga was approaching its end. On that Wednesday, Prosecutor David Yoakum stood across the courtroom from Erva in the dock. He looked very um, pale. I would say he looked weak. Uh, he sat quietly and... Uh, Behaved himself. He was never a problem. He never got out of hand. Uh, but uh, a lot of the witnesses said that he tried to stare him down. And a lot of the witnesses uh, felt his spirit or his feelings or emotions felt really uh, they were being threatened or indirectly through him in the courtroom. After previous failures, Yoakum wasn't taking any chances this time. He brought in the big guns to testify. I testified against him in his trial, which was tough. Larive Stubbs, who'd known Erbil since the early days of Colonial Baron, was anxious for her chance to face Erbil down. I'd never done anything like that in my life, and I was really upset. They had to work with me for three and a half days to get me to have the confidence to go in there and just say only what I needed to say. I didn't have any qualms. But it was a dang good testimony. Erville was going to make the fundamentalists, the All Reds, pay their tithing. And if they didn't, he would just have to start getting rid of them. And that's the statement I made. And I, of course, said it exactly proper in court. And when I left, I was shaken beyond because Erville was sitting right there trying to eye me down because he told his lawyers, if I can make eye contact with her, I can break her down. So my lawyers warned me not to look at him, not once. Because he sat like closer than that chair. And I'm sitting right here. Mm -hmm. I think that he did believe if I can make eye contact, I can mix her up, like mesmerize you. Because he did do that to a lot of people. And he did know how, but I wasn't one of them. I wasn't scared of that. I wasn't scared of verbal. Why not? Because I knew how to dodge him. I'd already proved it a hundred times. He was probably more scared of me than I was of him in the end. Next up on the stand for the prosecution was Erville's teenage son, Isaac. The one who had been at the April 77 meeting when Erville ordered the Rulin Allred killing. He was uh, the most emotional uh, and I think most believable witness the prosecution had. Certainly uh, much believable than the defense witnesses. They were all lied through their teeth. But uh, Isaac... Uh, had to come forward uh, reluctantly because he had been threatened all of his life in the short time he had lived uh, that he was never to talk to the police, never to give any information about it, the group or his father or anyone else. So it was very hard for him as a young man to, to come forward and speak on behalf of the prosecution uh, at trial. So when he got on the stand, there was a lot of tension in the courtroom. 
Prosecutor David Yoakum asked, what did Isaac think would happen to him if the cult caught up with him after this court appearance? He basically said if he should ever be caught by a member of the group or be faced them directly, that he'd probably be killed. So he was always under the impression that he had the death penalty assessed against him. And when he testified to that, it was, to me, very believable. Ervil had his witnesses too. People like Ervil's right-hand man, Dan Jordan, filed into the courtroom as family and cult members called out the prosecution witnesses as liars. It was they who were the violent ones as defectors from his church. Ervil was a peace-loving preacher being framed, they said. And then the defense and prosecution rested their case. It seems kind of strange, given how long the buildup to this day had been, that the trial lasted just 14 days. Which side of the cult would jury members believe? Like Plato's cave, was it going to be the ones who remained in the cave? Or those whose eyes had gotten used to the light outside of Ervil's cult? The answer didn't take long. Just three hours later, the jury returned to court with a verdict. Ervil's lawyer, Bruce Lubeck, looked on. The jury files back in and the judge says, I understand the jury has arrived at a verdict. The four-person stands up and says, yes, that's true. And he says, hand it to the bailiff. The bailiff takes the form, hands it to the judge. The judge looks over it, and so he knows before anybody, and then hands it to the his clerk and says, the clerk will read the verdict, has the defendant stand, and we stand with him. And then the clerk reads it and says, the state of Utah versus Irva LeBaire in case number 123. As to count one, we, the jury, duly impaneled in the above entitled matter, find the defendant Irva LeBaire guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, a first-degree felony. And then the judge says uh, to the jury, so say you one and all. Irva had been found guilty of conspiring to kill Verlon LeBaron and guilty of first-degree murder for the death of Dr. Allred. Well, of course, there was a, a lot of weeping and wailing uh, part of his group that followed him. Cult members in court were outraged. This was not in God's plan. This judge said, now, no, I'll have no outburst, and he would bang his gavel. Nobody bangs a gavel anymore, but he did all the time. He wore it out. But uh, I'll have no outburst, or I'll clear the courtroom. And he, he was very aggressive, judge. Ervil remained strangely calm. Even Ervil's lawyer was surprised by his reaction. There was certainly no outburst from him, nothing from him. And he said, okay, now well, now we'll get to work on this and uh, we'll get this straightened out. So thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate everything you've done for me. Why wasn't Ervil more upset? At a verdict that would likely mean he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. Surely this was the end for him, for his cult, for the Church of the Lamb of God. Clearly, Ervil didn't think so. I, I, I did then and, and even more fully now believe he believed he simply had a role to play. There's a scripture that says that there should be one mighty and strong and regardless of what he faced in this life. And he believed it. I believe he believed it. And uh, the rest of us were just plain in error. And he had the word of God and no one else did. Ervil was eventually transferred to a Utah prison. But there, this attitude of acceptance, just biding his time, remained. 
I went to see him in the prison more as a hand-holding effort. Uh, he was never uh, what I considered depressed or suicidal or there was optimism. Uh, somehow things would prevail, right would prevail, his view of things would triumph, and uh, he would come off the victor somehow, even at the, my last meetings. Yeah, he was, he was going to prevail. Ervil started preaching to fellow inmates, trying to recruit them. But while he sat in prison, the members of his cult on the outside, more of them had started to leave the cave and see the fire burning outside. Just like in Plato's cave, they were coming to perceive reality in the same way as those on the outside. Paul started seeing things in his doctrine and things in, he had done and things he had said that just, you know, we just couldn't ignore them anymore. This is Rena Chinoth during her interview with the writer Dean Shapiro for her book years later. He was doing things that weren't sense, that, that, that made no sense. He was saying things that didn't make any sense. Free from Ervil's grasp, from the late 70s, Rena had started to build a life away from the cult. Was this the last time you saw him? I didn't go in to see him. I didn't oh. see him. I hadn't seen him since Mexico. So you never did see him again? Then? I just, I, I couldn't. Rena wasn't the only one who was splitting away from the cult at this point. Lots of other members were moving on too. Some, like her brothers Mark, Dwayne, and Victor, were trying and succeeding to build lives outside the cult. For Ervil, these defections were the worst kind of betrayal. And from his cell, he directed his rage at them into the pen. He had nothing but time to write. And from his early days in Colonial Baron, he could go days writing, sometimes without sleep. Prison officers peered into his cell, wondering, what was he writing in there? Locked away, his followers leaving him, it didn't seem to matter. The insignificant ramblings of a madman. Then one day, in August 1981, they peered into his cell and saw something else. Ervil, dead on the floor. Detectives speculating about the precise cause of death would tell the press, maybe he took an overdose of drugs, his throat was damaged, maybe he suffocated after striking himself in the neck. But the Utah Medical Examiner's Office concluded it was a heart attack. And it almost seemed like no one really cared about the actual cause. The important thing was, it was finally over. Ervil LeBaron, the cult, the misery, the crime, the murders. It was finished. At least, that's what it seemed. To the people of Colonial LeBaron, to the mainstream Mormon church scandalized and embarrassed by this rogue bastard child sullying their good name, to the former cult members, Finally, blessedly, it was all over. But it wasn't. In some ways, Ervil's death was just the beginning of something far more monstrous, organized, and ruthless than anything that had come before. I was nine years old. I made a vow that I would give my life just by being in the cult, just by being born into it. And when a person had to die, it was so that that person could be saved 
so we didn't see it as an evil. That's coming up in Episode 8 of Deliver Us from Herbal. Deliver Us from Herbal is hosted by me, Jesse Hyde, and written and reported by me, Leona Hamid, and David Waters. Production from Leona Hamid and David Waters, Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Lena Chang and Megan Oyinka are researchers. Mariana Gongora is our field producer. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman and Sona Avakian. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolf. Michael E. Rao is our managing editor. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Mix, scoring, and sound design by Eli Block. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Our music is composed by Julian Lynch. Special thanks to Scott Anderson, Scott Carrier, Del Van Atta, Pippa Smith, Saskia Edwards, Matt O'Mara, Katrina Norvell, and Beth Ann Macaluso, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Shankman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.